Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing the Flexible Working Group, a new panel which aims to explore how flexible working could be used in the sector. So we'll be hearing from three people involved with setting up the group, Becky Hewitt, Sarah Vibert and Akiko Hart. And they're going to talk about how the project is progressing. And as ever, we'll be bringing you our good news bulletin. But first, uh, Emily, how do you feel? How do you feel about reality TV competitions? I'm a big fan of reality TV, definitely. Although I have to say I prefer the more wholesome and uplifting variety of reality TV. So Mm. I love your queer eye, your first dates. I cry at first dates all the time. Um, Strictly Come Dancing, love it. Um, so that's much more my line rather than, say, the engineered chaos of something like Married at First Sight, which is great in the first seasons, but it seems to have really uh, gone down quite an alarming route more recently. I really haven't been able to bring myself to watch that, actually. I need to, I think I might need to sit down and watch that. Oh, doing... you have to try at least one season. Okay. Because I do rather enjoy, one of my guilty pleasures is um, Don't Tell the Bride. I love Don't Tell the Bride. Okay, that is another great TV show. I have so many thoughts. I have so many thoughts about Don't Tell the Bride. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of them on a feminist bench, you will be shocked, shocked to know. Uh, but yes. Absolutely. And actually, you engineered chaos. You couldn't have a better a better one than Don't Tell the Bride. Um, <laughs> and speaking of that, you know, in very interesting news for the charity sector, there is a new reality TV show due to be launched in America next month. And it's called The Activist. Ooh. Yeah. So... The premise for this show is that six activists... Yeah, we can't see air quotes on... (laughs) Six activists are going to battle it out to promote their causes in front of a panel of celebrity judges who include Usher, Priyanka Chopra-Jones and Julianne Howe. So the winning team gets... I'm sorry, but what? Sorry to interrupt, but what? Is this real? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, we need to keep that in. That is the voice of our producer. Yes, yes. Can we keep that in, please? The voice of Lindsay Riley, everyone. That is the first time we've ever said something so extraordinary. Lindsay has actually broken through the fourth wall and you are now hearing from her for the first time. Lindsay, yes, in answer to your question, this is a real thing. And the winning team gets to go to the G20 summit in Italy, where, according to the press release, they are going to try to secure, quote, funding and invaluable awareness for their causes. (laughs) So I think we know what Lindsay thinks of this. Rebecca, what do you think of this? I'm really torn, actually. I think on one level, I, I do think it's great that activism is being seen as kind of cool and aspirational, that aspiring to sort of social justice and social change is being seen as as something that, you know, we want to put up on a platform alongside being a pop star or baking a good cake or whatever. Um, And maybe, maybe being generous, it will lead to massive public awareness of some of the issues featured. But on the other hand, I kind of think like, you know, um, the Hunger Games, the the books, the films. I do know the Hunger Games. I kind of think like this is the kind of TV show they might have had in the capital for people to watch during the time when the Hunger Games weren't on. Yes. So for those not familiar with YA fiction and and, um, fantasy movies aimed at at, uh, 
sort of teenagers tweens and teens yes um, so the, the premise of the hunger games is like they live in a sort of dystopian society where um the capital has all the resources and the money and everybody lives lives these sort of very vapid um lives in comfort and then all the other districts end up supporting them and have to sacrifice their children in a reality tv show once a year um uh, and yeah, I sort of think this is this is some of the other programming that one of the producers might have come up with alongside that. Do you know what I mean? So tell me more about the activist. What else do we know? So according to the press release, um, the competing activist success is measured via online engagement, social metrics and host input as well. So that the judges and the hosts will get involved. Um, I'm going to be honest, I don't know that that is a great way to measure the impact of a movement or kind of the level of engagement it's got. It actually... Honestly, this kind of focus on social media metrics and things like that and online engagement, it feels like a very surface level understanding of what activism is. And it kind of feels like what TV producers think young people think activism is. I think you're being so generous. But please continue. Please continue. I'm going to say my bit. I say I do, I do think young people are being kind of patronised here and served up in a kind of, yeah, a sort of sanitised clicktivism version of activism um and i just the other thing about the format is you know like i say like it could it could turn out that it reality tv attracts a huge following maybe it will turn out that 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 is what gets people interested in these issues but i sort of think like reality tv is kind of all about the personalities and the moments right rather than like kind of meaningful reflection and long-term engagement which is what has you know our listeners will know even better than me is about is what kind of creating a movement and actually achieving social change is about and i just i just wonder how much use that's going to be to the causes involved or whether you know it's just going to end up being more about the kind of on-screen personalities or kind of all oh, that moment when rather than engaging with the ideas so those are those are my kind of on the fence but uh, not convinced thoughts what are yours I think you have been possibly the most generous person about this TV show actually <laughs> since the, the the press release came out. So, I mean, full snaps to you for diplomacy. I think this sounds appalling. It sounds like the worst thing in the world. I think that setup of having, ha- okay, first of all, the setup of having activists go head to head in order to compete for funding, but not even by the sounds of the press release for funding for the opportunity to then go and get their funding and mm. so so i mean look we see people having to go head to head in the charity sector all the time we know that there are funding pots that organizations do have to compete to taking that and turning it into entertainment i think is so grim i mean i i wonder if it could be like a different way of doing it rather than what seems like a very kind of you know pop idol pop stars sort of way of doing it whether there would be like a a reality tv documentary that could be really fascinating about how some of these choices get made kind of more Mm. social experimenty fly on the wall yeah sort of thing like like i'm gonna you know we're gonna set up cameras in the office of the lloyd's bank foundation when they're deciding who gets funding or whatever that could be really interesting i'm sitting there being like what's julianne howe bringing to the table here as a judge (laughs) you you take it to julianne howe and usher Anyway, I think, you, you know, you, you, you made a point about massive public awareness. And I do think, you know, we, we do see reality TV on occasion bringing things into the public eye. And maybe that is a good thing. But I just think it is impossible to communicate the complexities of the issue. So the cause areas that they have chosen for these activists to focus on are health, education and the environment. <laughs> How are you going to get like a nuanced and a complex understanding? Just health, just all of health. 
all of education. Uh, and you think, um, um, I mean, I don't know what the format is going to look like, but you, you can't you can't get a genuinely nuanced understanding of any of those issues. Yeah. Uh, particularly if it's going to be, you know, maybe this is going to be on a global scale. Who can say? Into a reality TV format. Certainly, again, not a competitive one. I'm sort of imagining like a kind of RuPaul's Drag Race bit where they have to like, you know, you're given half a curtain tassel, a bit of fishing boat and some cardboard and told to go and make a campaign poster or something. Do you know what yes. I mean? Yes. Like, <laughs> so you have to ask, what is the awareness that comes out of a format like this actually going to look like? And then those metrics that you mentioned are so weird. Online engagement and social metrics. I don't know what that has to do with with kind of grassroots movement with genuine change, all that day-to-day work that that genuine activists are actually doing day in, day out, without any kind of recognition and more often than not, without any funding either. So so (laughs) this was... um, this this announcement was made, I think it was about a week ago, and ever since the uh, show has been getting a taste of its own medicine via those social media metrics very aptly, it has been roundly panned on Twitter with many people reacting in the same way that Lindsay reacted um, upon hearing that initial blurb. Um, but there were a couple of people who I thought made some very eloquent and uh, entertaining points. So Naomi Klein, are you familiar with Naomi Klein? I love, I love her books. I, th- I think they're so interesting. And yeah, like this, that is her book, No Logo, is kind of what this made me think of. This kind of experience of culture being branded as it happens is, is what her book, No Logo, is about. About how kind of corporations kind of muscle in on culture and on our everyday lives and that kind of advertising into our brain space effectively, um, which I kind of, yeah, that's what this feels like. It feels like branded activism or like mass marketed activism absolutely yeah. so yes so what what did what did my hero and bff naomi klein say? for anyone who is uh not familiar with rebecca's best friend naomi klein <laughs> she is the professor of climate justice at the university of british columbia and she's the author of multiple award-winning books that cover the climate emergency and other very important points in the social kind of activism world so naomi klein tweeted i'm confused Is this an advanced Marxist critique to expose how competition for money and attention pits activists against each other and undermines deep change? Or is this just the end of the world? (laughs) Um, And uh, Brittany Packnick Cunningham, who is an activist and a co-founder of Campaign Zero, which is an American policy platform that is designed to end police violence. She did an interview on CBS and she said, I'm going to try and quote as, as directly as I can here, Besides the fact that millions of dollars will be spent on hair, makeup, travel, celebrity hosts, production, money that could have gone directly to the causes and activists that will be featured, this is deeply dangerous. So her point was that this undermines that genuine activism and the organising which happens every day in those communities. And it creates this warped sense of what a quote like a good activist is. And it's a bit like that no logo thing. It's someone who is marketable, someone who is appealing, someone who has, you know, that kind of celebrity value about them. So it hasn't gone down too great among communities, particularly in America. (laughs) Um, And we did see some of our own homegrown. I saw Rodri Davis tweeting about it, uh, slightly less than impressed. Um, Interestingly, it is produced by an NGO, uh, called Global Citizen, 
Um, and they had to put out a statement responding to this backlash. So what they said was, this is not a reality show to trivialise activism. On the contrary, our aim is to support activists everywhere, show the ingenuity and dedication they put into their work and amplify their causes to an even wider audience. So, Rebecca, are you convinced? Will you be tuning in? I mean, maybe out of morbid curiosity as much as anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I kind of, you've got to look at a car crash, right? Like yeah maybe maybe um yeah i don't i don't quite know if it's going to be available in the uk or if you know it'll be on one of the streaming services or anything so how about you how about you i don't know i might look at a highlights reel on youtube <laughs> but i'm not sure i want to do anything for the ratings of this show um and on the plus side i have to say you know the next season of the great british bake-off starts on tuesday oh now that is exciting reality tv at its finest i defy anybody in the world to find pure drama that is more gripping than Ian's Baked Alaska going in the bin. Five seasons or something ago, everyone is still talking about it. That is reality TV. When it's just a cake that's at stake. It's, you know, that was was one of the early things, like just Sue Perkins turning to one of the contestants and being like, it's okay, it's just a cake. Like, I think that's what should be at stake in our reality TV. In any case, uh, I will be watching how this show does with great interest and maybe we can maybe we can start doing reviews or something (laughs) to build in we can we can share our thoughts in greater detail um but i think the best thing that came out of this discussion is is hearing from our estimable producer Lindsay. yes how great to get Lindsay on the mic for one split second but let's move on um to what we're actually talking about this week In February this year, Becky Hewitt, who was the then chief executive of Changing Faces, wrote a blog for Third Sector. In it, she talked frankly about her feelings of exhaustion as she tried to juggle her day job with homeschooling her children in lockdown. And she warned that the sector urgently needed to rethink its attitudes to flexible working. In a follow-up blog written last month, Becky said that her initial piece had generated a huge response, with others in the sector approaching her to talk about their own feelings of being overwhelmed and stressed. Some said they had experienced huge stigma or disadvantage from requesting flexibility or part-time working. So clearly she wasn't alone. It's a conversation that we've now seen a number of people having across the sector. We previously featured the DSC's decision to condense its working week into four days on this podcast. And as charities now begin to discuss what heading back to the office will look like, there's a timely discussion to be had about how much time people should be spending working and how to balance that with the rest of their lives. Hewitt's second blog announced the formation of the Flexible Working Group, an initiative by the National Council for Voluntary Organisations and the charity leader's body Akivo, along with the executive search firm Starfish Search. The group, chaired by Hewitt, aims to start a conversation about flexible working in the sector. Announcing the formation of the group, Hewitt wrote, As charities consider how to build back post-pandemic, there is a critical opportunity to start a conversation about the flexible practices and cultures needed for truly inclusive workforces. She went on to say, Our hope is to bring together many perspectives about how we can do things differently. We want to share ideas, thinking and best practice, give charities confidence to try new approaches and create momentum for real and lasting change. To find out more about the group and what it hopes to achieve, I spoke to some of those involved in setting it up. So I'm joined now by Becky Hewitt, uh, former chief executive of Changing Faces, an erstwhile blogger for Third Sector. Lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having us. We've also got Sarah Viber, the interim chief executive of NCVO. 
Hello, great to be here. And we've also got Akiko Hart, who's the Chief Executive of the National Survivor User Network, who's also involved with the group. Hi, great to be here. Thank you all very much for joining us. Um, So there's been a lot of discussion about work-life balance and burnout during the pandemic. I think it's something we've all become incredibly aware of. But I I get the sense from some of the conversation as well that perhaps for the charity sector, this is an issue that actually predates the pandemic. Is that fair? Yes, so... My view on this is this is an issue that's existed for a really long time, but it's almost come to a head and become much more visible during the pandemic. And for me, that visibility, almost that sense of crisis has really encouraged me and caused me to look at things with a fresh perspective. So my own experience of this is um, I've got two daughters and when they were one and three, this amazing job came up at Girl Guiding. It was a real dream job. I was desperate to do it. But I looked at it and thought, there's no way I can do this at this stage of my life. And it so happened that at that time, I did a little working group, a focus group with a group of young women in girl guiding. They were teenagers and we were talking about glass ceilings and careers. And one of them said, you know, I I really want to have a senior job, but I also want to have a family. And nobody is role modelling this. You know, I can't see it being done. And I remember thinking, oh, darn it, I'm going to have to go for that job now. (laughs) This is so disappointing. (laughs) Anyway, I did go for that job and it really was her who encouraged me to do that. And I got it. But the only reason I was able to do that job successfully is because I was supported to work flexibly. And that experience then gave me the confidence to ask for a four day week when I took on my first chief exec role at Changing Faces where I also had great support. But if I'm really honest, my approach in both of those scenarios was throw 100% at work, you know, work full time behind the scenes, give 100% to my kids, um, but not leave very much for me. And I think, you know, behind it all, I was I was burning out. Um, but I was kind of able to hide that pre-pandemic. You know, you can, the swan and everything, you can try and pretend everything's okay. But the pandemic stopped you being able to hide. You know, suddenly all that chaos, all that burnout, you know, the kids popping up and showing their artwork or changing your name on Zoom. It was all there for everybody to see. But I could also see all the stuff my colleagues had been hiding. Not hiding, but, you know, had been behind the scenes. They'd been holding it all this time. And wasn't just childcare, of course. And one of the things we're really keen to focus on in the group is the fact it's not, this is not just a parenting issue, although of course it is that. There is many reasons that people need to work flexibility, whether it's disability or health or mental health, it's a much broader issue. But I suddenly saw for the first time what everybody was holding. Um, and I thought, you know, this, this isn't okay. There's a huge amount of burnout going here. And it's not just, as you say, it's not just now, it's been going on for a long time. And that visibility made me think about what have I been normalising? In the sense, what have I been propping up this broken system for all of this time? And I realised, you know, I've been feeling actually quite apologetic about being a working parent, rather than understanding what an extraordinary contribution people are making. I'd, I'd been feeling apologetic. I've been feeling shameful, really. And that had caused me to overcompensate and do more really than I could, which then took me back to the role modelling. And I thought, you know, I I want to role model that you can work flexibly and that you can take on a senior job um, and that you can be there for your family. Um, But actually what I'm role modelling is something that's not sustainable. So that's a a realisation you're having, Becky, but also at the same time realising that that this must be the same for everybody else as well. It's not not just a kind of one-off thing. It's a structural issue. Sarah, do you have any thoughts on that? Totally agree. It's not a new issue. I think for disabled people, for working parents, carers, 
you know, all sorts of reasons why people might want to work flexibly. It's a, it's a long-standing issue. Um, and I remember how frustrated everyone was a few months ago when the train companies started um, offering flexible season tickets. And there's people who've been campaigning on that for years. But I think, you know, looking at it from the other angle, the, the, the pandemic has provided us with kind of the impetus for this renewed conversation um, um, that, that Becky described. Um, I mean, I think it's important to say that flexible working and burnout are not the same issue, but they're clearly related. The pandemic has shown us those in different ways so certainly in terms of flexible working it's forced us into different ways of working and made that um, people's own situations much more visible as Becky said Um, and certainly we've seen that with our own staff team but also among our members we're getting so many inquiries at NCVO about issues relating to HR staff and well-being Um, but in terms of burnout as well I think the other thing we've seen I've spoken to so many leaders who've pushed themselves too far I think so many people in the sector went into this emergency response footing but months later realised you cannot sustain this emergency response footing for a long time Um, and I think now people are starting to respond to this and and have much more open conversations about it and also how the flexibility during the pandemic has worked negatively so for many people it's meant this real blurring of boundaries between home and work um, having too many meetings into a day working during the hours they would have been commuting and so it feels like a real moment to stock take as a sector about um you know how, how what, what we want the culture of our sector to be in terms of flexible working and, and, and work-life balance I think that's a really good point, that point about burnout and and, um, flexible working, that I think flexible working is often presented as the solution to burnout. But at the same time, I think Becky, in in one of the blogs you did for us, you were sort of saying, actually, people end up working a full time job on part time hours as well, and that that can be its own sort of trap. So one of the, the so these are some of the kind of really knotty issues that you guys are hoping to tackle with the flexible working working group. And so how did this working group come about? In the middle of the pandemic, when everything was right up here and these issues around balance were feeling right at the front of my mind, I wrote an article for you guys, actually, at, at Third Sector. It was really just a personal piece about what I was experiencing. But I'll, I found it hard to write. It felt very exposing and I, I felt quite vulnerable when I did it. Um, but it was published and I, I had this huge response to it. I, I literally had hundreds of messages Um all from people who were in a similar situation and for lots of different reasons. You know, there were, there were lots of reasons people were struggling, not just because they were parents, but I felt that this issue was just incredibly widespread, but was hidden. People weren't really talking about it. And that really made me think, as I said, about my own experience, but also what were the structural things that we might need to change. And one of the people who reached out to me was Sarah um, and brilliantly just said, we should really do something about this. And we also got in touch with Vicky at Akivo and she was really keen to do something too. So that's how the the group was formed, really just by a sense of this is a moment, there's an opportunity where the issue is really visible, there's momentum. Actually, we've shown ourselves that we can do things differently in terms of ways of working if we really try. So we decided to pull together on it. And we've, we still haven't selected the working group, but oh my goodness, we've had an amazing response. Um, and it's such, um, a diverse, talented, interesting group of people. 
Um, so I hope it's going to be a really productive and interesting conversation. Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, when I read Becky's article, it it spoke it spoke to me so strongly. Um, it, it it rang so true um, in terms of my own personal experience as a mum of two young children, aged three and six. Um, and I've tried so many ways of working flexibly, and I don't think there's a perfect solution. But equally, what we were hearing from NCVO's members um, about staff wellbeing, about burnout. I mean, on a recent call with a group of charity chief executives, they all said that staff wellbeing was one of their biggest risks. Um, and um, so, yeah, Becky's article really made me think there's something we really need to do to support this cultural shift in the sector. Um, I also think Akivo's involvement is is so critical because um, there's kind of kind of two angles to this from the point of view of leaders. You know, we want to be a sector that nurtures a diverse pool of leaders um, and flexible working is so important to achieve that. But also if leaders are working flexibly, you're role modelling to staff. So there's that virtuous circle. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess the big question is, what are you hoping this working group's going to achieve? So primarily this is about starting a conversation. Um, so I don't think we're going to provide all the answers, but we hope we can help organizations to connect with their staff and to start asking the right questions um, I mean I think the barriers to flexible working are twofold so firstly there's organizational barriers and they can perhaps be fixed with a different way of thinking about how work's organized um, and there's probably some very practical things to work through particularly for example perhaps for organizations with frontline staff delivering services and that looks very different to what flexible work looks like for somebody's office base for example you know we've already touched upon there's something much more structural here you know if the sector expects you to be at a breakfast meeting Meeting, to be at evening receptions, to respond to newspaper articles on a Sunday, then I know as a leader, I felt like I'm failing when I can't do those things. And it kind of took the pandemic for me just to say, no, I can't do a 6.30 meeting, even remotely. That's the time I put my kids to bed um, and kind of recognise that in saying that it's not me that's the problem. Um, talking to disabled colleagues in the sector and leadership roles saying, you know, I can't do a meeting at 8am because that's before my PA starts work. And so I won't have the support I need to participate fully in that meeting. So I don't think it's just about well-meaning policies and practical things organisations do. It's about how do we put that into practice in the reality of working in a charity, working in the charity sector. Um, and I hope as NCVO we can play that kind of role in terms of convening our members around these discussions and really bring insight together from across our membership and, and get and share the best practice that is out there in the sector um, in terms of trying to achieve this. No, that makes sense. And and a role there in sort of sheltering and protecting other colleagues there as well. And sort of, you know, speaking up for other colleagues and not just yourself, that that kind of, kind of comment about the PA as well uh, was, was really interesting. Um, Akiko, what are you hoping to, to get from this group, do you think? Yeah, I applied to the working group because it really spoke to me um, on both a personal and a professional level. So I'm just acutely aware that so many conversations around flexible working can really centre, um, you know, the needs of people like me, um, people with caring responsibilities. I have a room that I can work in, which isn't the same room that I sleep in. Um, I've already got an established network. But I think the picture is a lot more complicated, as Sarah has already um, spoken to. And I think especially, for example, if you look at younger people, there was a recent survey by the City Mental Health Alliance, which looked at their experiences in the workplace during the pandemic. And, um, you know, younger people do want more flexibility at work, but they also want time in the office with their peers. They want to build relationships and networks. For me, um, 
coming from an Ensun perspective as a membership organisation, there's also something about the experience of flexible working within smaller organisations, groups, collectives. I think there's something about leading smaller organisations, especially over the past 18 months, you know, where the need has felt so great, so overwhelming, you know, and there's fewer people to carry the load. Um, there's less resource, there's less infrastructure. And so even talking about flexible working can just feel like a luxury. And, and from what Becky was saying, it seems that you've had a really good response so far. Um, you know, are, are charities, do you think, open to this idea of flexible working? Is there an appetite to have this discussion? My experience of this has been people that are really keen to have this conversation. I think it has been making working life difficult for a lot of people for a long time. Um, and it's been brought to a head, as we've said. And I think people are very keen, as Akiko has been saying, that we look at this from broad perspectives. You know, there are there are many different ways that this conversation needs to be had and a lot of different perspectives that we need to include. Um, and I think the strength of response is partly to do with that, wanting to ensure this is a conversation that's properly representative. Um, but I also think there's a real appetite to try and get things right and experiment within charities at the moment. I think people do see this as an opportunity. I think a lot of people are quite overwhelmed. It, it does feel complicated and difficult. There is a lot to consider. Um, but I think, therefore, if we can start a conversation, if we can share some stories of the kinds of things people are trying and that they're experimenting with, if we can encourage people to share what they are trying, then hopefully collectively as a sector, we can get better at it. Uh, Akiko, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think what's really tricky is, is that, you know, when you're in kind of firefighting mode, it's just so hard to find, you know, the space to think about this stuff. And so you have this vicious circle where you can't kind of like quite get out of this kind of firefighting, reactive, overworking, kind of close to burnout mode in, in any way. And and I think so many organisations within the sector are kind of locked into that way of thinking. So for me, this is what I've personally found really helpful. And what I'm hoping to get out of this is, is seeing a few examples of some organisations doing things slightly differently, both inside the sector and outside. And that just kind of sparks off a slightly different way of thinking about things. So I don't think this is going to change the sector. But for me, I think it might open up smaller conversations and some changes within some organisations, and that will have a ripple effect. Yeah, because I suppose one of the powerful things about the pandemic was just that it, it you know, took away so many things that we'd accepted as normal. And actually, do we want to put them back? Do we want to put them back differently? You know, there are so many things that we've kind of just, yeah, unconsciously got used to that perhaps can change. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think one of the dangers now is, you know, this collective trauma that, that we've lived through over the last 18 months, I think, you know, are, have we really addressed that? Have we named that? I, I almost feel that there's a danger that we do try and go back to what we had before. And I think, you know, how do we not do that? essentially, and, and take some time to, to, to think. Yeah, Becky, you're, you're nodding vigorously there. I, I so agree with that. And I think, Akiko, your point about the collective trauma is, is such a good one. Um, another, I was going to say another thing that I really hope we can achieve from this is it's quite frightening and difficult to ask for flexible working. And that's, you know, when you, whether you're applying for a job or whether you're in role, it, it feels risky um, and it feels lonely and there is shame attached to it, I think. 
And I certainly felt very lonely when I was first trying to establish this. I just felt like I was going to be a less good employee. And I think if we can make that conversation easier to have and if we can normalise it for people and encourage organisations and and employers to take responsibility for saying we're happy to have this conversation with you you know take the burden away from the people who need to ask and say actually we're we're really open to getting this right I hope that will make it easier for everybody to have the conversation for whatever reason they want to seek flexibility, you know, particularly for people where there might be more real or perceived barriers for them doing that. So something about normalising and helping people they're not feeling alone would be a really good outcome for me from this. And Sarah, did you want to jump in? Becky's sort of covered what I was going to say, but I was just going to add that I think there's also a re- there's a really important inclusion angle to this for people working in the sector who are already experiencing discrimination, that adds another barrier to flexible working. And so I think there's a really important link to the sector becoming a more inclusive sector. And I think the pandemic is because of the inequalities it's exposed in society, but also the renewed focus in the sector on becoming more inclusive. Um, So I think there's a really important link to that agenda as well. Absolutely. Um, And one of the, the kind of the things that really strikes me about this it feels like one of the biggest issues where it comes to this problem of burnout within the sector is that it can, to a certain extent, be self-inflicted, right? People feel this incredible pressure to work hard for long hours because they really do believe in the cause. They want, they've signed up for this job and they want to work hard and do well at it because they, they want to change the world and they, you know, they know that the, that is a big task and they, they really want to give that time. How do we tackle that kind of element of it, the fact that it, it, to an extent it can be self-inflicted? Yeah, I think um, that's that's the question, isn't it? I mean, you know, that there's no single story of the pandemic and it's really easy to assume that your personal experience of it is a universal one. But my, my personal experience of the pandemic was, was one of overwork, you know, just living on fumes, living on the edge of burnout throughout. And that the boundaries between my personal life and my work life, which were already pretty porous, completely collapsing. But... Um, that was happening before the pandemic. And it's an issue that's endemic within the sector. And I think really importantly, especially within certain subsectors, I think we need to name um, some of the emotional transactions at play within um, the work. You know, I'm, I'm lucky that I have a job that I find interesting and, and meaningful. And having a saviour complex about the work doesn't help me, doesn't help anyone. It's terrible modelling for people coming into the work. And I think it exposes some really like big ethical dilemmas about the work, like why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? What are you secretly expecting? Is it is it praise? Is it gratitude? Are you doing it for you, for someone in your life, for your community, you know, for some kind of imagined group of beneficiaries? And I think that all needs unpicking. So for me, the kind of the how we go about doing the flexible working is intrinsically linked to why we do this kind of work. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Sarah, did you want to jump in yeah just just to add to to what akiko said i think um very similar experience to akiko in terms of um overworking particularly during the pandemic um and i think partly because of the kind of focus on culture change at ncvo when i became interim ceo i forced myself to stop it because of the role model role modeling that i was doing so stopping the long hours stopping working weekends and Actually, that's been a really important step. I almost never open my inbox on a Monday now to an email from a colleague. Um, I also, I mean, I think it's just lots of little things that leaders can do to set the culture. So 
you know, if I'm picking my kids up and I'm leaving work at half two, I put that in my diary. That's not something I would have done a few years ago. I would have kind of hidden that fact. Um, you know, you often see people, their email signatures now talking about flexible working. I think all of these things start to really normalise. It has normalised these behaviours and, you know, putting it in front of people as much as, as possible. I mean, all culture changes about lots of little things being done differently. But I also think there's something about charities setting fewer priorities. Um, and again, the pandemic sort of forced this discussion. You know, a lot of organisations have fewer resources and have had to focus on where are they having the most impact. Um, I'm not suggesting that any of us have got it right yet. Um I'm sure we're all still doing too much, but I think there's a really important role for leadership teams and trustees as well to really focus priorities down and, you know, do fewer things brilliantly. Absolutely. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, um, Becky Hewitt, Akiko Hart and Sarah Vibert for joining us. So each week we are bringing you a good news bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. Rebecca, what do we have this week? This one probably isn't necessarily good news, but I think it's one of those ones that when it drops into our inbox, we all go, oh my God, have you seen this? Um, It's quirky. I think this qualifies for like quirky news, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And in that spirit, oh my God, have you guys heard about the charity raffle in Froome? So Froome Town Football Club in Somerset joined forces with a local car dealership to set up a prize draw to win a £16,000 car with tickets priced at £5 each. And, you know, so far, so standard. Um, and the, the idea was that the once the cost of the new car had been covered, uh, the remainder would go to the club, with 20% going to the community support charity Fair Froome. Now, there's a slight hitch in this story in that gambling laws um, mean that postal entries have to be accepted for free. So if you have a lottery or a, a, a raffle, you have to be able to have a mechanism where people can send in a postcard with their name and address on uh, and in order to be counted as, as, as an entry. Um, and this raffle had to be called off because they started getting postcards from around the UK from people wanting to enter the draw um, because the competition was flagged up on the Money Saving Expert website as a a free way to win a car. So people start entering and then one day they turn up to the club and on their doorstep is a cardboard box which has been left there by a local room man with 2001 postcards in it with his name on. So it's all from the same man. And he's just like... Do you know what I love about this? What's that? Is that he did 2001. Right. He's like, you know, 2,000 postcards, not enough. I need that extra postcard just for luck. 2,001 postcards. (laughs) A car odyssey. Uh, Um, Yeah. It just, yeah. And yeah, like you're like, yeah, okay. we get it. You found the loophole. Well done. Well, you found the loophole. It's not really the spirit of the rules, is it? No. So, I mean, he also, like, essentially dropped them an email being like, I've done this and you have to consider my entries. Um, and he's basically kind of, yeah, he, he sort of said he wants photographic proof of the draw to, to prove that it wasn't dodgy and that he's not being shortchanged. While he's effectively claiming £10,000 worth of free <laughs> entries to the competition, which you're like, well, that's, that's some nerve, sir. That There's is, a slight is... double standard, a slight double standard going on there, I think. Yeah. And it just so, yeah, so this, this raffles had to be called off at, at the end. So the charity will get no money. No one's getting a free car. We all have to take our ball and go home. Um, 
Which, yeah, like... I think there is a, a small silver lining in that I, I read that some people have requested that their refunds do get donated. So there will be some small donations. But um, yes, Mr. Throne Man, not really in the spirit of the thing. No, like, yeah. Thank you for ruining that for everyone. <laughs> but also giving us a little bit of a laugh. Um, it is such a wild story. Yeah. Um, so next up, more wholesome, uh, I have to say is uh so we've got a lady who has got some teenage mutant ninja turtle models in her garden and we're talking like larger than life size like taller than a a person heroes in a half shell heroes in a half shell uh rendered in i guess carbon fiber i'm not sure um (laughs) whatever they're made of um but yeah so um so they're seven foot tall, uh, and uh, this is uh, Tara Chilton in Walton near Felixstone, Suffolk. And she and her husband, Simon, rescued them from a theme park in East Sussex that was getting rid of them. And she's, yeah, she's using them to, uh, so it was a, the park was a, a sort of one of those theme park zoo type places. Uh, and it, they'd raised £200 for the zoo. Uh, she's also using them to raise money for NHS charities together. So people, I think people are coming to look and they're paying. And they are, they're quite impressive. They're very, um, if you think of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like I, I like the cartoon versions are all kind of colourful. These are quite kind of like dark, gritty Zack Snyder type interpretations oh, nice. of the Ninja Turtles. Like they're very, um, yeah, uh, sort of, yeah, dark and gritty kind of uh, realistic looking yeah and i think the the plan is uh she's going to auction them off for nhs charities together and for this local zoo as well so uh yeah hope that goes well they're really yeah they're, they're really quite impressive it's quite quite a nice jolly little story i raise a pizza uh, in their honor tonight <laughs> cowabunga dude cowabunga So that's all from us this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guests, Becky Hewitt, Sarah Vibert, and Akiko Hart. And to our producer, heard on the mic for the first time ever, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.